We have managed to steal Andrew a number of times. I'm almost feeling guilty about it. Almost. Not quite. Maybe use him a few more times. But um, it, it really is true that we felt just kind of partners um, in the gospel. And in the midst of that, Andrew's actually just becoming a really good friend to me. And when he asked me to uh, come and um, speak this morning, um, we chatted on, on Monday. We hung out for a bit. And w- I was compelled to actually talk about this whole idea of friendship And I think it is so vital, especially in uh, the intense times that we're facing now, all the difficulties, even some of the things that were just addressed now about what it means to get involved, um, you know, in the life of the church and just that moment of when we see people come and we see people go. This is all pointing to this, this aspect that you can experience within the church. And I want nothing more than for every one of us to experience that. And that is this whole idea of spiritual friendship. I know you've been in the book of Philippians for some time now. And one of the great themes of that is humility and community. And what I'd like to do is have you turn to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel, which can be found on page 392. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I want us to spend our time this morning looking at what does it mean to actually have a spiritual friendship? What can you come to expect within the life of this church? What can you come to expect by way of relationships if you choose to follow Jesus. And I would like to do that from this incredible story. I thought it would just be a nice little change to an Old Testament um, book, but something that connects very much with the theme that you are looking at in this season of your church. 1 Samuel chapter 20, begin in verse 1, read to verse 23, and then the last few verses of the chapter. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide it from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. 
May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of my enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go and find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And down in verse 41 and 42. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is God's word. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not only planned to save us, but to bring us into communion with yourself and with others. I pray that within that, the community that we experience for these men and women here in Grace London, for my own community, I pray that we would experience deep and meaningful friendships. I pray for those who are wounded by perhaps others in this church or outside that people would experience healing today. And I pray for those who feel incredibly lonely. Maybe they don't even feel very much a part of even this community. I pray that they would see what true friendship is and how it can be found within your house. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher and lead us to Jesus? We ask this in your name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. It was Mother Teresa who spent a lifetime uh, working in Calcutta amongst the most poor and destitute of all. And surprisingly, she said that the worst disease that she came across was not leprosy, it was not AIDS, it was loneliness. Loneliness. We are made for deep and meaningful relationships. In fact, uh, we suffer with, without them. And yet very few of us actually experience them. I think in many ways, especially in cities, there can be a famine of friendship. We all know life, life is a long and very often difficult journey. And along that journey, they must be, these difficulties and these joys, they must be shared together. And I believe that not only for you to just survive, but to thrive in our city, we need friends. 
Not just networks, not just your LinkedIn profile, not just like loose associations, not fans. Some of you probably have those. <laughs> You're like, oh, my fans, they love me. It's not enough. Not employees, not just neighbors, not just acquaintances, but friends. I would say that for me, some of the greatest transformation that has happened in my life has happened in the context of friendship. And I would love nothing more than for the same to be said of you. Uh, many of you know that J.R.R. Tolkien, yes, nerd alert, um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis and others belonged to the now legendary group of writers and thinkers called the Inklings. And they met frequently in an Oxford pub for pints, pipes, and prose. I worked hard on that. <laughs> they were not only teachers and authors, they were also friends. In fact, uh, if you read, like I do, a little bit about that history, they became known as apologists for friendship. Because they discovered that in the modern world, friendship had either been devalued, unappreciated, or simply not experienced. Here's what C.S. Lewis um, said about friendship. Put the quote on the screen there for you. He said, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. It is something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. So my question is, how did we come to this place? How has deep and meaningful friendship come to be undervalued or just not experienced? And let me just give a few reasons why. Um, to begin with, one reason is there is this belief that deep and meaningful friendship can only be found in a romantic relationship. Can we talk about this? It is now like the modern, some of you are like, wait, no? Like, <laughs> it is now, especially in Western culture, is now this belief that like, you know, the, even if you have a million friends, it doesn't matter unless you're in a romantic relationship. And therefore, the belief is if you're single, you just have to settle then for half meaningful relationships. So I'm wandering around. Yeah, I've got these friends, but like only if I can experience romance, then I'm going to feel like my other half, you know, the one or, you know, whatever phrase um, you want to use. But the Bible says something completely different, which leads to the second reason why I think it's been undervalued is because it's rarely been experienced. People just haven't experienced this deep kind of, of friendship. Many of our relationships are spread so far that they've actually become very thin. There's little trust. There's little intimacy. There's little strength. Um, there's little commitment. So how are we to understand friendship? I just want us to think about you know, different views for a moment, and then I just want to give four quick truths from this text. There's generally speaking... If you read philosophy and all that, there's essentially three views of friendship. The first category is friendships that are built on usefulness. You're only looking at the benefit that another can provide. Um, this is essentially like networking, you know, um, especially in cities. Like, oh, hi, you know, what do you do? Like, oh, I work at this investment firm. Oh, amazing. We should definitely get a drink. And, you know, the wheels are spinning in your mind. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I'm an investor. And you're like, really? Well, I am worth investing in, you know, I've... <laughs> I don't know if any of you watch The Apprentice or Dragon's Den. You know, it's like, we've got these ideas, and I'm just like looking for a backer. And so often it, it happens even with the context of our social relationships. Maybe some of your own friendships are simply built on usefulness. But then there's another common view, and that's friendships built on amusement. 
Like we're living for the weekend. It's been a stressful week and I just, you know, I just want to find my friends and we have one sole mission and that is fun and that's it. Many of my friendships were, you know, before I became a Christian were simply built on amusement. Like it was all about the party, like living for the eternal weekend, which is by the way, what every pop song is about. Have you ever noticed this? Every pop song you could summarize the worldview as the search for the eternal weekend. Like, all night, never ending, um, no crying at the club, N- never mind. <laughs> it's embarrassing that I know that. But then there's a third view. <laughs> a third view is friendships built on virtue. The idea is that y- you have a relationship that's actually built on a vision of something good and meaningful and purposeful and, and fulfilling, and you can actually help one another within this pursuit. And the stronger that vision, the stronger your friendship will be. Well, the Bible tells us that there's no greater pursuit than God himself. And degrees of friendship in this life will vary, but the deepest is found in a relationship with God. Why? Because friendship finds its origin in the very character of God. The Bible tells us that God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No wonder the the Bible is full of remarkable friendships. Has anybody ever read or studied the book of Ruth? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, so like Ruth and Naomi, like this incredible friendship. And, and here we see David and Jonathan. But you can't understand them unless you realize that these friendships are not casual. They are built on a covenant. A, a covenant being a binding agreement, something that actually holds you together, a commitment centered on God. And through him, we are able to discover the deepest friendships of all, spiritual friendships. And that is what I think is pictured for us in the friendship of David and Jonathan. And as I briefly go through four points before we enter into a time of communion and worship, I want you to think, first of all, about whether or not you have this kind of friendship in your life. As I go through this description, I want you to be thinking, like, do I have this at Grace London? Do do I have this in my life? But secondly, I also want you to think about how you can build this. Some of you might think, okay, well, I don't really have this. Well, what can I do? Hopefully this can be practical. It can also serve as a way to assess where your community and your friendships are at. But one disclaimer, friendships cannot be manufactured. Okay, the point is not, you know, welcome to Grace London. Turn to the person next to you and say, hi, will you be my best friend? (laughs) Actually, that'd be fun to do as an ex. No, don't, don't do it. That is probably the most awkward thing that can happen. Like, hi, will you be my best friend ever? It's like, ah, like, yeah, I just didn't connect with Grace London. I don't know why. It was just, you know, super. But I always wonder if somebody in that moment said yes, like, what would happen? Like, yes. Like, okay. Now what do we do? <laughs> what do friends do? <laughs> like, should we eat? Yes, let's eat. Like, it would just be so awkward. So my disclaimer is, you know, Friendships can't be manufactured. So don't look at Grace London like it's a, you know, like this um, friendship matchmaking website, you know, like eHarmony or whatever. I I don't really go on those. Um, But (laughs) whichever ones exist, this is the job of the church is not to be like, hi, I found a best friend for you, like through your online profile. You know, you filled out the Grace London Connect card and we found a friend. And you're like, yay, I'm being adopted. (laughs) Friend. Friendships are not manufactured, they are discovered. They are discovered, even in the most unlikely ways. Now, some of you are like, when is he going to get to the text? The answer is now. (laughs) 
the thing about David and Jonathan, keep in mind, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of friendship in the Bible. But the thing is, it never should have happened. The friendship between David and Jonathan never should have happened. And a little bit of context is helpful. Israel's very first king is a man named Saul. God chose him, but he rebelled against God. He, he turned away from God, and thus he turned away from what it meant to be truly king. And in the midst of this, God chooses another man, this young man, King David, who begins to rise up in power. He's a man after God's own heart. He's the one that slayed, as we now know famously, the great giant Goliath. And so people's loyalty is beginning to turn to David. Yet nonetheless, even though David is rising through the prominence in the armies of Israel, David is still a loyal person. And yet at this time, King Saul is paranoid. He's thinking, I do not want David to take my throne. And in the midst of all this, Saul had a son named Jonathan. Think about it. Who is the next in line to take the throne if Saul were to be taken out? His son. His son, Jonathan. Who is the one that everybody, you know, if there was, you know, like a referendum on, you know, who should be king? Some of you are like, too soon. Um, (laughs) Most people would be casting their vote for David. So Jonathan naturally should have viewed David as a threat. Like, no, the throne is mine. I'm not going to let this guy, like this young upstart, like he's not even naturally a part of the royal family. He's just been working up the ranks. The thing about this friendship is that it should not have happened. They should have been adversaries seeking one another's downfall, but God knit their hearts together. And I say that because we're in a room full of natural enemies. Like we're all kind of, you know, just focused on our own agenda or our own selves, but God changes everything. So let me give you four characteristics about this kind of friendship. The first is this. Spiritual friendship is marked by vulnerability. That is, friends are willing to bear their souls. You want to know what spiritual friendship is like? And keep in mind, all of us come from a different, you know, cultural background and mindset where, you know, friends and family operate a little bit differently. I want us to rise above that, and I want us to look at the Bible's vision of this. It might be really natural, for you to bear your soul, in which case you're probably an oversharer, <laughs> or maybe an American, um, <laughs> or perhaps your tendency is to, to not share and to withhold. I have many people in my own family like that. You just bury everything, and you know we secretly hate each other. How are you? Fine. I hate you. You know, in your mind, there's kind of that little, you know, kind of twink in your eye. But notice, David and Jonathan. They're totally vulnerable. Here's David in verses 1 through 3. What is David doing in this chapter? He's bearing his soul. That's what friends do. They're being very honest. David's like, I'm going to die. And Jonathan's like, never. You know, like this is what they're doing. He says in verse 3, I'm a step away from death. This is a moment of need. David is vulnerable. Now, Jonathan was not yet convinced of the problem. He's like, never shall it be. Like, it's not going to happen. And yet, notice, Jonathan acknowledged that David's feelings were authentic. Jonathan doesn't say, David, get over it. He's he's, he's listening to David. Good friendships are going to be marked by good listening. And as it will come to pass, David's life was threatened. In fact, in one occasion, his life was probably threatened multiple times, even in a day, as the envious and paranoid Saul seeks to take David out time and time again. David shares freely. Within friendships, if we're going to pursue this and maintain these kinds of friendship, this kind of community, even the kind of community you see with the Apostle Paul, when you go back to the letter in Philippians, you'll notice that a lot of Paul's references 
to his friends are, are very open. He's very free to share. He said, I was concerned about Epaphroditus. I don't know if you've gotten there yet. Maybe that's next week. Some of you are like, who's Epaphroditus? Then the answer is, you haven't gotten there yet, but you will in Philippians. Paul has these deep friendships, and they're marked by vulnerability, just like David and Jonathan here. That is a willingness to share what's happening in your interior life. And one of the great questions I've found that has been helpful in friendships and community is, um, you know, instead of just small talk, how was your day? You can say, how did you experience your day? That's been a really helpful question for me. Because typically it's, how was your day? Good, fine, bad. Oh, moving on. You know, like it's usually the, the goal, right? Just move on. But how did you experience your day? Wow, I was really anxious. I was really fearful. Or I was really excited. I was, you know, I was, I was very joyful. Oh, why? We just want to go a little bit deeper. In friendship, you move from the surface. And you move to the depths of what's going on in your interior life. In other words, you don't just talk about what happened but how you're experiencing it. Friends go beyond the mask. And it's so easy, especially in church, to just wear a mask. Like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, and we use, the difference is we use Christian terms. Like, I'm blessed. Are you blessed? I'm totally blessed. Hashtag blessed. Like, that's like all it ever is. And don't get me wrong, I love that word, but is that just simply an excuse to talk about, to not actually go where we're really feeling, what we're really experiencing? If that's the case, then you'll spend most of your time, effort, and energy in church managing your appearance. You'll come to church thinking like, I've got to have it all together. Like, I am one who has it together. And someone's like, do you want a biscuit? And you're like, of course, because I am one who has it all together. Like, you know, don't, don't cry on the spot. You know, that would be vulnerable, and we don't, we don't want to do that. The way of following Jesus calls us to not manage perceptions and appearances, but to bear our souls without fear. And that can happen in friendship. It's like a refuge. I have this with a few people. I, I may not have it with everyone, but I have it with a few people. And it is like a refuge. And I, my encouragement to you is if you have this, continue in this. And if you don't have this, take steps toward it. When you meet with each other, you know, this week in your life groups and um, communities, whatever it might be, ask someone, what are you finding encouraging right now in your life? Or what are you finding discouraging right now in your life? Those are two good questions. Like, what are you encouraged by? What are you discouraged by? Like, let's actually talk about this. Let's be willing. And notice with Jonathan here, this vulnerability, it essentially requires two things between David and Jonathan here. Listening graciously and speaking honestly. Those are two key elements that I think, regardless of what cultural background we're from, should characterize Christian community. Listening graciously, speaking honestly. Because if you listen well, you'll learn to speak well. And if you're like me, you're just, you just start talking. Someone's like, oh, I lost my job. Oh, really? That's interesting because I've lost my job many times in my life. You know, there's a, a time back in 2004 when, when I lost my job. And you know what I did? Like, I watched this TED Talk. It was really great. It was really helpful. And the other person's like, can you just stop talking for like a minute? It's something my wife is always telling me. Like, I just want you to listen because I'm a fixer and... She's like, I was feeling discouraged. I'm like, no problem. We can fix that. Like, we can solve all of those problems. Do we need to move something? Let's move it. And she's like, just listen to me. It's a lesson that I need to learn. A willingness to listen is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. But then you need to be able to speak honestly. 
which Jonathan did to David. We need to challenge one another. We dare to discomfort one another by telling the truth. It means you're open about your particular areas of weakness. Jonathan was a little bit naive. David is like pretty impatient and dramatic, you know. Jonathan's like, oh, it's not going to happen. And David's like, I'm going to die. And he's like, no, you're not. but, But it was good. There's this gracious listening and honest speaking. The opposite is flattery. The book of Proverbs says a lot about that. Proverbs 29, verse 5. To flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. This should not happen within our friendships. Where we just say, oh, no, it's fine. No, you're great. Like, everything's great. It's fine. This is not going to be helpful for anyone. We need to learn to receive and give correction. In fact, I would go so far as to say within the church... I just want to manage your expectations about the Christian church, by the way. Expect correction. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> yes. Expect correction, examine it, and then endure it. So when you're looking for friendships and community in the church, expect that somebody's going to be corrected. The reason I think that's important is because oftentimes people come into a, a church and everything's going fine, maybe a year in, maybe that's where you're at, and you're like, I've never been corrected. I love this place. I'm only ever affirmed. And then one week, you know, Andrew says something from the pulpit, like, you need to repent. And you're like, excuse me? <laughs> or maybe a friend says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And you're like, how dare you? <laughs> So just to shape your expectation, expect that you will be corrected and then examine it in light of scripture and then endure it, receive it, receive the truth. And all of this must be expressed in love. We're called to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Part of finding and maintaining spiritual friendship is being vulnerable. But secondly, spiritual friendship is marked by loyalty. That is, Friends are committed to the good of the other. And that's what we see happening here in verses 4 through 10. By this time, David had married Saul's daughter. So David was technically a part of the royal family. And in the midst of all this danger, David proposes to skip this monthly royal dinner. One that he should be present for. It was expected for him to be there, given his place in the family and his place in the military. And Saul will note his absence. And this will provide the opportunity for Jonathan to find out whether or not his father Saul's intention is to kill David and get rid of him. Now, David was well aware that what he was asking Jonathan was risky. And the only basis, listen, the only basis that could justify such a request was Jonathan's commitment to David. We see that there in verse 8-9. It says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father to harm, that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Notice the reason that, that David presumed to even say such a thing, to make such a request, is because commitment defined their friendship. This wasn't just casual. It wasn't just fair weather. It wasn't, hey, we have fun together on the weekends. It went much deeper than that. There was a a commitment there. But it wasn't some kind of blind loyalty. Okay, this is often what we find in friendships. We're just blindly loyal. Like, doesn't matter if they did anything wrong. Like, I won't call them out for it, and I'm just going to you know, kind of guard them and protect them, but I won't tell them the truth. 
But notice what Jonathan says. No, if there was wrong in you, if you committed a crime, if you've done something wrong, you know, like I, I would tell you, and David, David invites that. He says, if I'm wrong, speak to me. If there is this guilt. See, these are different ways of seeing that a true friend is committed to the good of the other. Like whatever is best for you, whatever is good for you, that is what I'm investing in. And this involves an investment. This involves commitment. And I think that is something that is sorely lacking in Western culture today. To quote Proverbs again, and by the way, Proverbs has much to say about life, but one of the most prominent themes in all the Proverbs isn't just money and conversation. It's actually friendship. It has a lot to say about friendship. And in chapter 20, verse 6, it says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? It's easy to say we're friends. Have you ever noticed how casually the word uh, love is thrown around? Like, oh, I love you, love you too. Especially in California, love you, bro. Like just every day, like to the guy that just served you a taco, like love you, you know, like love you too. Like I don't know how to answer this. But as John Stott once said, to say that we love everyone in general is often an excuse for loving no one in particular. We just throw it out there. But yet we're not actually willing to do the hard work necessary to show love to one another when it matters and when it counts. It involves commitment. The opposite is a fair-weather friend who, if, if that's you, and I know that was me for many years, you're not committed to the good of another. You're committed to the good of yourself. You're saying, I'm only in this as long as it's good for me. But they often say, your troubles will allow you to see who your true friends really are. And this comes out in moments of adversity. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. We have and we will face times of trouble, both you know, corporately but also individually in our own lives. Have we been keeping up our friendships beforehand in times of blessing so that we can be prepared for times of adversity and difficulty? Are we committed to the good of our friends? When things are going well, that is great. Continue to commit. When things are going bad, continue to commit. Part of taking steps there is just begin by regular commitments and then watch them grow. You know, some of you are like, well, how do I find this kind of friendship? Start meeting up with a few other people and it just starts small, but it begins to grow over time. Uh, The author Hugh Black wrote a book called Friendship. It's a great title. And in it, he gives this helpful piece of advice. He says, through little occasions of helpfulness, we are training for the great trial, should it ever come when the fabric of friendship will be tested to the very foundation. And what I love about that phrase is little occasions of helpfulness. Some of you might think, well, it was no big deal to, you know, offer somebody, you know, a coffee on a Thursday or whatever it might be. But let me tell you, it's those little occasions of helpfulness, helping someone, you know, move house, whatever it might be. It's those little occasions of helpfulness that are training us for the great trial, should it ever come. And I would say it will come. Which raises the question... What is the foundation? Because for true honesty and vulnerability and loyalty, thirdly, spiritual friendship must be marked by faith. It must be marked by faith. Friends are to be God-dependent. And that's what's happening in verses 11 all the way to verse 23. Jonathan and David, they go out into this field, and then Jonathan takes them away from, from earshot, and he makes this speech. I love it. He starts speaking in third person. That's when you know you're really getting serious. Like, 
I, Timothy, vow to, you know, like, wow, we've, we've just gone to the next level in our friendship here. So Jonathan says, far be it from Jonathan, you know, to, to you know, not be faithful to David. So his friendship with David would be considered treason at this time. So keep that in mind. And in his speech, the name of God, notice this, the name of God is mentioned nine times. In the speech that he makes outside in the wilderness to his friend David, God is mentioned over and over again. May God be between us. May God be the center. May God help us. May God do this. May God do this. God is to be at the center. If we want to understand spiritual friendship, deep friendship, God must be at the center. Jonathan is about to find out that his father is consumed with anger. And so Jonathan's speech here is dripping with the prophetic. It's, it's almost like, yes, he's preparing himself for what is going to happen. David has been selected as God's king. And so it gets even more legal here. Jonathan is actually making a covenant with the house of David. He's saying, like, even if, if Saul is, if my father has turned out to, if this is true, that he's out to kill David, then my loyalty is going to be with David's house. And so he's asking that his relatives would not be cut off. It is this faith that binds these two together at the deepest level. For it means that friendship is not this random act of life, but connected to the grand goal of life, which is knowing and loving God and showing his love towards one another. The word used here for love is loving kindness. Has said it's the steadfast love, which is God's love which is incredible because Aristotle said friendship is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. I've always found that very interesting. Like when you meet, when you have a really good friend, you like share so many things like, like, Oh, me too. Like you too. Like, Oh, this is so great. Well, the greatest friendship of all, the deepest friendship of all is always three. It's me, you, and God. And that's described wonderfully in verse 23. He says, the Lord is between you and me. I love that phrase. The Lord is between you and me. For those of you who are married in the room, this is a phrase to to say to one another, and it can, you know, you can be quite grand. May the Lord be between you and me. You know, make it dramatic on a date night, um, whenever that is. Um, It's not a bad thing. Like, worst case scenario, it's a great date, you know. Um, Best case, strengthens your marriage. The Lord be between you and me. We have covenanted together. But even true of community and friendship, the Lord be between you and me. And it means that when we encourage one another, we point each other towards God. David's distress made it hard to see clearly. But Jonathan helped him keep his perspective. Jonathan pointed his attention towards God, and this would not be the last time. Notice what it says uh, a few chapters later, just a little sneak peek before we get to our final point. In 1 Samuel 23, later on, Jonathan, it says, went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Isn't that a wonderful description? Jonathan was going out of his way. He said, I need to find David. What are you going to do when you see David? I'm going to make sure that he's encouraged in his faith in God. I'm going to make sure that that he stays strong in his faith in God. See, friendship is built on more than circumstance or preference. 
God will serve as the foundation and direction for them. And true friends will settle for nothing less than helping each other go in the direction of God and become their future glory selves. I want to help my friends become more and more like Jesus. I want them to help me become more and more like Jesus. And this has a binding effect on friendships. And it is not just abstract. It is demonstrated in action. And that leads to the final mark of a spiritual friendship is it is marked by humility. There's a vulnerability, just a willingness to share one another. There's this this loyalty. There's this God-centeredness. But finally, there's humility. Specifically, from the story, notice, friends, true friends, are willing to be second. They're willing to sacrifice. And if you skip down to verses 41 and 42, you'll find one of the most memorable departure stories in the entire Old Testament. The rest of the chapter is about how Jonathan conveyed the news to David of Saul's intended violence. And that whole thing with the arrows was their sort of code to let each other know that, you know, what was happening. If the arrow went beyond them, then they would know that David's life was threatened. And so using arrows, Jonathan signaled that the Lord had sent him away, meaning Saul was out to get him. It was no longer safe. And so in this moving scene, they meet up, they begin to weep because they know that this is kind of the last time they'll be able to be with one another in safety. So they weep each other, they kiss one another, they speak these words to one another. But what I want you to notice is that there is more than just affection in this passage. Jonathan's commitment had a political dimension because a kiss was more than just an expression of friendship. We see this throughout the Bible. Many people try to read into this some kind of erotic relationship happening within David and Jonathan. It is simply not true. It is simply not there in the text. And that view actually devalues what is actually happening and what the author intended in this passage. Something profound is taking place here, and it has to do with even political dimensions. A kiss was not only an expression of friendship, but also of veneration. When Samuel the prophet kissed Saul earlier on in this book, it was when Saul became king. That was a sign. It was a sign of veneration. One of the most remarkable references to this kind of display is in Psalm chapter 2, where we're told that all the kings of the earth are called to kiss the son, speaking of their loyalty to King Jesus, speaking of God's anointed king. The kiss is an expression of humility and an acknowledgement that somebody else is in charge. So it was not only a sign of affection, it was a sign of Jonathan's glad acceptance that David, not his own father, would be the future king. That means that Jonathan, who was next in line, was willing to lower himself and lay aside his own robe, as we're told he did earlier, and say, I will step aside for my right as being king for your sake. I am willing to be second. I am willing to step back for your own good. And friends, that is powerful because this is just a shadow of an even greater and more powerful departure story in the New Testament. Because the gospel that we believe is the story of the greatest crown prince of all who has a right to the throne. And yet we're told Jesus entered into a covenant, not just to be our friend, but to be our savior. And when he did, he humbled himself. He lowered himself. He actually laid aside his robe. He laid aside all of his privileges and his glory to bear the curse upon himself for the evil that we have done. 
the sins that we have committed so that we could be with him together forever. And that means that Jesus Christ is the ultimate friend who is committed, so committed to our good that he went all the way to the cross to secure it. He went all the way to the cross for our evil. And that's why the New Testament speaks of Christ in this way. Romans 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's because of his sacrifice. It's because of his commitment. It's because of his initiative. We are brought near in friendship with God. And that's why Jesus said in the upper room discourse, a passage that Andrew actually spoke on with our, with our own church. Jesus said these profound words. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so I want us to think about this as we go into a time of communion. For the follower of Jesus, it is covenant, not circumstance, that defines our relationship. Jesus doesn't say, I'm committed to you as long as things go well. He said, I was committed to you when you were walking in darkness and evil. That's how great my commitment was. And when Christ declared his friendship to his disciples, he broke bread, which speaks of the new covenant. And this is astounding that Jesus, the Son of God, invites us into this circle of intimacy with God himself, God the Father, this nearness that extends to all of his followers. So Jesus in the gospel has become a friend to you and for you who is to be with you forever. And it is this forever friendship that we build all other friendships upon. And so I ask, are you willing to take the lower place? Because of what Christ has done for you, are you willing to take the lower place in Grace London, in this community and in your friendships? Are you willing to serve in in humility? I know the desire for friendship for many of you is there, But are you willing to take steps towards that? Instead of complaining that no one, this is a common mistake. We tend to inwardly complain that no one in this community invites us around for meals or people are unfriendly or the conversation is superficial. My advice to you is you be the first one. You be the one then. If that's how you're feeling in church, you be the one that goes and initiates. You be the one that says, I, I, I'd like to buy you a meal. I would like to apologize for this, or I want to be friendly, or I want to take the conversation to a, to a deeper level. I would encourage you to take those steps. Knowing that when you enter into a friendship with others built on Christ, there's always three. And though your friendships will go up and down and like in and out, Jesus Christ is the grounds and the goal. And that means you can also forgive other friends for when they've been unfaithful to you. So with whatever barrier lies between you and others, could even be a family member, I'd love for these words to just be etched on your own heart. May the Lord be between you and me. And that's what we say in communion, that Christ is our mediator, that not only by which we are forgiven, but we can forgive one another. He is the friend who will never leave us and never forsake us the very foundation upon which we can experience friendship in this life. Amen? I hope that you would trust in this, Father, as we get ready to break bread and remember all that you have done for us. We remember indeed that you are the true and greatest friend of all. You lowered yourself. You were willing to bear your soul 
absolutely committed to our good, speaking the truth for us and willing to lay down your life for us. And I pray that belief in that good news would be demonstrated in the way that this church loves each other. And I pray upon that foundation, amazing friendships would be found. That amazing friendships would be healed. And through it all, may we become more and more like Jesus. And if there's anyone here who has never put their trust in Jesus as not just friend, but Savior, I pray that they would do so now. Remembering that Jesus truly has paid it all. So as we take communion, Lord, would you remind us of this? Would you remind us of this? And may the phrase we use to each other is, may the Lord be between you and me. We ask this in your name.